Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, the worst person in the world dooms the romance of Julian Jack. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. And we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, here in uh, the lonely, romanceless world of cyberspace. Uh, without a co-host, it seems, because Adam is still on his sabbatical. Though, uh, luckily, I think I ha see someone locking in to the chat room here. Yes, it's an old friend of ours popping in uh, very last minute, and I really appreciate it. It's Mr. Uh, Ryan Quarterman. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's your podcast night in shining armor. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> there's not going to be any awful elements of this relationship at all with that kind of white knighting. So, um, but, now, welcome back, Ryan. Uh, you came in here in a pinch because I had a guest host that was going to do this, and just through life stuff, uh, they couldn't be on. No worries, no ill will toward them, obviously. We'll have them back on at some point. But uh, you came in here for our episode about Doomed Romance, which this is in honor of this day we're releasing this episode. is uh, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day out there to everybody, whether or not you have a significant other. Um, but, uh, Ryan, I, I pitched this over to you because I knew you at least had seen the good pick that our patrons picked between my two choices, and I yeah. was very curious to hear your cho your thoughts on the bad one of Julian yeah. Jack, uh, which we'll, we'll get into in a second. <laughs> but how do you generally feel about sort of the romance movies where, in the case of doomed romances, it's basically where, like, the couple doesn't get together at the end? How do you think you that kind of works out for you? I, I really like that stuff. I, I tend to like more, like, downer shit anyway. And when it, it... It is weird, though. The spectrum is, like, I love, like, goofy rom-coms and then, like, downer shit. So, like, putting them together and you get, like, a sad rom-com for me. <laughs> You're the only one in the theater who's not crying. Just like, yeah! Pumping the yeah. <laughs> Those crazy kids didn't get together. Fuck them. Great. Yeah, it rocks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that can work really well, especially even if it's in like a, not necessarily a rom-com context, but even just a general romance context. I think it's interesting just that sort of like uh, better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all kind of moment necessarily. I think it's not the only thing I want to see out of my romance movies, but at the same time, I think it's it's an interesting sort of subgenre that doesn't have to be a complete and total downer, as I think we'll get into with uh, one of our films today, which, um, if you don't know, uh, at the end of every episode, uh, we pick a good and a bad pick related to uh, a topic that we do. So at the end of our last episode, uh, we end up with uh, Adam's bad pick, which he always submits, uh, even when he's on sabbatical, he'll be submitting his other picks uh, for each episode. Uh, he had his pick of uh, Julian Jack, the bad pick, which we'll start off with. And then, as I mentioned earlier, our patrons at patreon.com slash dedbpod uh, voted in a poll between my two good picks, which we end up with the worst person in the world. So we'll get started first, though, with Julie and Jack.
somebody is to want to be with that person forever. Would you like to live that long, Jack? A thousand years? How could you make me love you like that? And what? Now you don't love me anymore? So uh, Julie and Jack uh, came out in 2003, vaguely. Um, I'm going to just say right now, there's not a lot of information about Julie and Jack in terms of <laughs> production or release. Uh, but the big sort of noteworthy thing about it is it is directed and co-written by uh, James Nguyen, who most would probably know as the director of Birdemic, the Birdemic trilogy now. Uh, as of recent, there was a third installment in that franchise released. And uh, before we even get to, I guess, Julian Jack, Ryan, have you seen Birdemic? Uh, yeah, I, I saw Birdemic on the big screen, actually. That was my first time seeing it. Some friends dragged me to it. They were like, you gotta see this. Birdemic is a lot of fun. I love how many shots are dedicated to just cars turning. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's how you get five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> to, to cars turning, to hanging out with your family. To yeah. CG GIF birds flying around for sure. Yes, that's uh, Nguyen's claim to fame, of course. But this was his first film, Julian Jack. And this is probably the most obscure film we may have ever covered for the show. So uh, a brief uh, synopsis of it here. Um, the movie mainly stars uh, Jack, uh, who is uh, played by Justin Kunkel. Um, who is this guy who's like a software salesman, is like falling behind on his sales, needs to sell these computer chips to people who are clearly in the same office building that he's in, just in a different cubicle um, that he calls on the phone. But he's like, oh man, I'm not doing great at work, and my love knife's not great. Uh, you know what? I'm going to try doing some online dating. And he does that uh, and finds Julie Romanoff, uh, played by Jen Goetz, um, Gots? I don't know. Apologies if you're listening, Jen. I'm not sure to pronounce your last name. Um, but uh, they meet up with each other, as it turns out, in uh, cyberspace. Initially, like, and the thing is, that's not revealed until like 30 minutes into the movie. For a while, yeah. I just think like, oh, they met online and they actually went out in public. And then 30 minutes in, it's like, oh, wait, it's he has like a VR headset in 2003? <laughs> <laughs> that can hook up to, like, a Dell laptop. <laughs> okay, it's, sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then we'll keep revealing more plot twists that go on from there, because that's not the end of it, um, for sure, <laughs> on that. But, um, Ryan, I'm sure you had no idea that this was a thing, right, when I told you this was the bad thing? <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually really nice when someone recommends a movie I've never fucking heard of before. And to go into this and slowly realize not only is this, like, a like a so bad it's good kind of thing but it's also from the birdemic guy was was a real treat and what were your overall thoughts in that vein of like the sort of so bad it's good nature because i don't think we've talked about so bad it's good on the show before we're both fans of that kind of like fun thing adam and i love that but uh do you think this lives up to sort of that birdemic echelon of like oh my god this is so hilariously awful (laughs) Birdemic, I think, is way more fun. I'll say that. This is a little too slow. Uh, I don't think it keeps the momentum as well. Uh, When it does have those moments, it's a lot of fun. But they're too spaced out, I feel like. And there's a lot of filler in there that's not as fun as, 
like Birdemic CGI birds and stuff like that. That's true. Yeah, Birdemic has a lot more of that sort of like pace together where it's like, oh, wait, so the, the bad music, like the opening in Birdemic, as you mentioned, we're just a guy in a car and it keeps yeah. going for like forever and stuff like that. There, there's a lot more of that like pace evenly out. But I think what's fascinating about Julian Jack, especially if you go in knowing little to it, is that it feels less maybe like a so bad it's good movie and more like one of those train wreck bad movies where you're not necessarily <laughs> laughing the whole way through, but you are fascinated by the choices being made at yeah. like every turn. <laughs> we're just like, wait, this is what this is? And then, oh, wait, now this is what this is. Wait, who is that? Why are they here? <laughs> and stuff like that. The unraveling of Julian Jack, I think, is incredibly fascinating. <laughs> the moment that just shook me and I was gripped from that moment on <laughs> is... Uh, when he takes the the helmet off for the first time, revealing that this was all basically Ready Player One, uh, and, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and it, as it keeps going, it just like he chooses the path of like, "Oh, this girl I met on VR chat is ignoring me." I'm going to use the details she's given me about her life to stalk her and find her. It's so great. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, even like before that though, there's a lot of like this stuff where it's like that inept filmmaking uh, spoilers did not really uh, manage to grow from here to Birdemic. There's not a lot of growth, I would say <laughs> in terms of his craft. Yeah. Uh, I will say, cause there's definitely a lot of like the weird choices, like how many times we either have like, there's the weird mix where there's the point where like Julie and Jack have their first date at the restaurant. Uh, and I say restaurant in quotes because it looks just like a wall that has a table on it. There's that point where like there's a really bad audio and you can hear like every single possible noise outside whatsoever. And then later on they go to the museum where they look at the painting of the first female uh, computer programmer. And yeah. it's the most bizarre dubbing possible, <laughs> where there's no other sound except their voices. There's no background noise, anything like that. And it's just insane how just like it shifts like that where like, you know, like that goes from like scene to scene it flops between that kind of like different versions of bad filmmaking <laughs> and it just looks like even compared to birdemic i would say like the the museum scene is i think where it shows the worst quality but like it looks bad it looks like they're using like fucking nothing level cameras <laughs> But are you saying that the DV cam that they used to shoot this isn't the best quality? There's not, it's not up to like a red one. Or I know like... who would have thought, but you know. <laughs> um, but it, it also doesn't help that admittingly, um, the casting here with particularly a uh, Kunkel as our main lead. Um, apologies to this man, but dude looks like a Frankenstein monster lumbering around. <laughs> And he's got that fucking name. That's true, the name is amazing, but he's so, like, giant and massive, especially against everybody else around him. I just feel like anytime anyone is close to him, it's just like, oh, no, he's going to throw you into the river. Don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't get close to him. He's going to do something. And that's where, like, especially as this goes along, and you see, like, especially even early on, there's the point where, like, he meets up with his best friend at his house, and he's, like, literally, his best friend is in mid-coitus, and, he, like, the Kunkel knocks on the door and just like, oh, I think someone's at the door. No, no one's at the door. There's no door here. No doors exist. It's like a skin rink. Like, there's no doors that, that just disappeared all of a sudden. Dude, every time he goes to the friend's house, I don't know why I thought it was really bizarre that they were, like, in the middle of sex. And the friend stops having sex. 
and tells her to get the door <laughs> and that she like lets him in and then they meet up and he's like hey bud how are you doing <laughs> there's there's so many weird like side people like his boss at yeah. the computer chip place when he's having his meetings uh, or yeah. like on a PowerPoint presentation and it's just like we need to push these profits. I know everyone's being their sales quotas. Guess what? They're doubling now. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone's not going to be able to meet their quotas now because you just doubled them that second. And then it's just like, oh man, I'm going to throw you out of here if you don't get better at your job. And like I said, there's so many points where like he, uh, the, the Jack character is on the phone with somebody trying to sell microchips and they cut to like a guy who's in clearly the same office building in a different cubicle Talking about just like, no, I don't want any of these things. Please stop calling me. Like, it happens like twice in a row. He just says, please stop calling me. But yeah. the third time, like, oh, no, I'm d- I gotta do it. It's because he's so confident now. He's in love. <laughs> I My favorite of his coworkers is uh, during the meeting uh, when all this, the people are like, wow, he's really stepped it up. He's, he's making those sales. And then it just cuts to this, like, fucking... 35 year old wine mom who's like i heard it's because he's got a hot girlfriend right by the way and she's in a completely different place like it's, it's so clearly cool. like they... <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of bits like that but yeah so we should keep going with like so the twist that happened even after that vr twist that happens yeah. after that point we found it even further like oh julie apparently does not want to see Jack in person. And there's this whole hullabaloo. He's just like, I need to see you in person. I can't just keep meeting in cyberspace. We can't just keep meeting at our great Gatsby party costumes that we're doing in front of like that culture center in San Francisco. <laughs> we can't keep... <laughs> Which, by the way, the VR, like, it is just like, it's actual like them on location in San Francisco. It's just like a Dell laptop in 2003 did such a great job of recreating this two perfect detail modern ai art ain't got nothing on that apparently <laughs> yeah but she ends up breaking it off with him and then as you mentioned he starts stalking trying to find out more about her past boyfriends or previous co-workers um through various interviews especially i love the the former boyfriend's office that is clearly a hotel and you can see like the hotel like signage like right behind him <laughs> <laughs> they're trying this guy's like no this is like his office building as this keeps going he eventually meets up with her mom and dad which yeah. um the mom is played by tippy hedron <laughs> star of the birds and not only that but tippy hedron's character is living in bodega bay the place where the birds takes place so i guess official birds sequel in which she went back to that town after all that horrible shit happened, lived there, raised a child, who ended up dying horribly, and now her consciousness is uploaded into this VR chat. Yeah, do you think it counts more as a bird sequel or a birdemic prequel? Well, I mean, the bit of footage you see of her in Birdemic is from this movie, where she's feeding her bird. Okay, so wait, this is the bird sequel that is canonized as a movie for the Birdemic universe. Right, that's that's my headcanon as well on that. Because you see it I... in TV on the background, which I love. Yeah. Even in Birdemic, Tippi Hedren is credited as footage from Julie and Jack. <laughs> That rules. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so a lot, when all this is happening, Ryan, when all this crazy shit starts happening here in the second half of the movie, what is your thought process? Um, I, I actually only had this thought after the movie, and it was, 
he had met up with like six fucking people and at this point no one thought to casually mention like oh it's really sad she died or something like that he had to wait all this time to find it out from the parents directly that he's stalking a dead girl right yes yeah uh, of course apparently that that was the case but yeah even especially like there's the well, we, did, we didn't mention that uh, one of the people he ends up uh encountering is her former college professor played by mr nguyen himself who pops up um and it's just like oh my she was my best student possible like i remember when i was teaching her and he's in like a classroom with only julie and him and there's no other students around no one's leaving class or anything it's just like there's a class of one that he's being that he's teaching and she's just like oh you know like the first computer programmer was a woman he's like oh a woman interesting nodding his head and then it flashes back out I I like when he first shows up. Like I I he's at the door and he's like, he says something like, "Can't talk coffee now," and like walks right. off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but uh, yeah, and even just the that element of like getting Tippy Hedron here is nuts. That like he managed to get Tippy Hedron to say all of this dumb dialogue and be like the linchpin of just like, oh, by the way, it turns out my daughter isn't living anymore. And it's like, what? And then he finds out about, like, the whole, like, oh, she was uploaded as a consciousness by, like, Julie later. Julie's just like, yeah, I uploaded my consciousness into this VR program, and this is the only way I exist now. (laughs) You know, as one does. (laughs) Right, you know, I mean, I have that plan stored up, you know, whenever I eventually go, I'm gonna have to back up my consciousness. It'll be like Avatar, only instead of a Navi body, it's the VR. (laughs) It's like transcendence. (laughs) I mean, it's it's honestly it's it's weird how like this came out about a decade before her, but yeah. weirdly has some some interesting similarities <laughs> to her. It's it's so weird. I mean, I, I just can't emphasize enough how like that reveal of like just going along this like huge lumbering, as we mentioned, like poorly produced storyline, only to end up at like that. Newman calls a romantic thriller plot. Uh, ending up with, like, this massive sci-fi twist. I think that's the thing that, like I said, I think is really enjoyable about this one. It's just that unraveling until we get to that exclamation point, and you see Julie just being like, no, it's this is the only way I can exist, and I guess I'm not going to exist that much longer, because I'm. <laughs> it's not going to keep going, and look, here's the sphere to show you, and it's like, it's like a disco ball yeah. gif shows up and then disappears. <laughs> it's so fucking weird. <laughs> It's. It reminded me of, uh, and and I know it's not, but it feels like Joss Whedon made a little nod to it in Age of Ultron when they do uh, uh, Jarvis's like mind. <laughs> That's what her brain looks like in the VR chat. I mean, I'm sure he was a very big fan. Huge sure fan. There's no doubt. License. Right, yeah. and explains the quality of Age of Ultron in many of his films. Absolutely. <laughs> right, for sure. Yes, uh, he's really paying tribute to the greats, like James Nguyen, <laughs> the, the true arts of cinema. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is like I agree with you that maybe it's not nearly as like consistently funny bad as like a Birdemic, because Birdemic just has like one dumb thing after another that's like yeah. really consistently bizarre. Uh, and this has a few some of the things that we should mention. Uh, Darian Carter shows up, the hanging out with my family guy, as uh, like this pastor at a church that Kunkel goes to and there's an elaborate musical number that just goes on that feels like just, did you walk into like the Blues Brothers fucking church for a second? <laughs> it's so off, so weird, but uh, you can at least see the early inklings of what would later produce a Birdemic, right? Here. Yeah, absolutely. Like, 
it very much feels like if you weren't going to get better from here, you were going to get funnier from here. And Birdemic is proof that he got funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, did you have a decent time watching Julian Jack unravel as it did? (laughs) Yeah, I I had a pretty solid time. I, I didn't expect much of it. It's, yeah, it's all right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess those can serve as decent final thoughts since we have another movie to talk about anyway. But yeah, um, yeah, I I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I I totally agree. I think it's uh, it's a fascinating, bizarre, bad movie that uh, just doesn't necessarily have, I agree, like the consistent so bad it's good qualities of like the best ones. Like on here, we've talked about like Miami Connection and stuff (laughs) like that. Those are like the the A grade. But I think this is still like incredibly fascinating, especially for like such a low, low budget. And Nguyen has this like fascination, just like, no, I'm going to like make all this work for me. I'm going to have a massive sci-fi genre bending twist to my dumb kind of rom-com that like could have just been like a lot more flat and dull consistently but i think those twists and turns like could only come from somebody who has a (laughs) massive amount of ambition and uh not nearly enough talent to make it work necessarily though now let's get into our good feature the worst person in the world i said goodbye to me i looked in the mirror then i began to cry So, uh, The Worst Person in the World uh, came out October 15th, 2021 in Norway. It's a Norwegian film uh, directed by, and I'm going to probably fuck up this name too, apologies, sir, uh, Mr. Uh, Joachim Trier. Trier? This is a film that uh, came out, like I mentioned, in 2021 in uh, Norway, but uh, February 4th, 2022 in the States, and uh, is a movie that got a lot of acclaim, was uh, sort of hailed as one of the best films uh, from the last couple years, and got nominated for two Oscars last year for Best Original Screenplay and Best International Film. And uh, basically, if you don't know what this is about, um, we follow our main uh, protagonist, uh, Julie. Interesting factor I didn't realize until I was putting the notes together. <laughs> we have two Julies as our leads here. Um, uh, played by um, Renate uh, Rainserve. Um, and she is this young woman who, at the start of the movie, is initially in med school and then realizes, though, I don't want to actually do this. I want to transition to doing something else. So uh, she decides to uh, go into psychology and then eventually decides to <laughs> become a photographer. Like, she basically is, like, she's a young woman who isn't sure of, like, where she wants to go necessarily with her life. And she's on the cusp of turning 30 by the time we eventually uh, get to, like, the main part of the story. It's kind of divided into 12 chapters and an, a prologue and an epilogue, as it states firmly at the beginning. Um, it's basically just about her life as she... Um, 
goes through that kind of like sort of a quarter life crisis period. Um, you know, she's about to turn 30. She's initially dating this uh, comic strip artist, uh, Axel, uh, played by Andrews Danielson, um, but then starts to notice another guy who she kind of grows an attraction to, Elvind, uh, played by Herbert Nordrum. And uh, she, you know, it's basically just about her kind of living this life where she's like kind of confused about what direction she wants to go and who she wants to be with and what she really wants out of life. And I saw this last year and it came out a few days before my own 30th birthday. And I can't tell you how much of like a weird existential crisis I was having (laughs) watching this movie mere days before my birthday that year. It was just like this incredible sort of fascination where I think it's an incredibly entertaining movie, an incredibly joyful, wonderful movie that at the same time deals with touchy, unfortunate subjects and is like very upsetting. But at the same time, there's this weird kind of like beautiful life affirming element to it that I just think like it's a it's a phenomenal movie. It was one of my favorite movies from last year, and I truly, truly loved it. But um, Ryan, do you share those sentiments about the worst person in the world? Uh, yeah, no. When I saw it last year, uh, I I'd already really liked it, but uh, when she blew out the candles uh, this morning on that thirtieth birthday cake, something felt really bad inside, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think that the movie is incredible. I'm a really big fan of, well, I'm starting to become, I should be clear of the director and especially when he's paired up with what's his name, Anders, uh, something, uh, he, he's, they did a movie together that I guess is part of a trilogy for this film, uh, called, uh, Oslo, August Oslo 31st, I think movie is really good i would probably say a little bit better than than this one but but they're both so comparable in quality yeah i mean i haven't seen his other films more just out of a desire to not be extremely upset i guess necessarily (laughs) um because i was tempted to be like because that's on movie the oslo movie you're referring to and i was just like should i watch that it's like i don't know i already felt pretty like in not necessarily like even a uh, depressed mood from this movie but just in that kind of weird ennui kind of thing where like this is a movie that like i said because of you know where i'm at in my life and stuff like that like i don't have necessarily the exact same sort of experiences that julie does but there's a lot of things that hit to a very true real core <laughs> about yeah. you as a person particularly at, like this age or even they have that i love the fact that it's not just that kind of quarter life crisis thing because you also have the axel character who at points like i love how he feels initially kind of like a pretentious artist type but then as things go along you find out more and more about him as a person and how actually like real and brutal that is for him and especially you know with the the turns that happen in this movie that i won't spoil just yet but uh with his character it just makes you feel not just even like general quarter-life crisis but just about like general life worries and troubles about just like oh what am i you know doing with my life here and how much time do i have left necessarily are things gonna go extremely fast for me after a certain point to where like everything's gonna be done too early for me and stuff like that i think it's a movie that juggles all that stuff beautifully yeah absolutely I, i can't emphasize enough how much i love um Reinsev as a lead actress in this movie. I think she's so incredible with the way that she's able to be, you know, just like, if you just saw her generally, it just feels like, oh, like she's a general, like, uh, you know, attractive looking, beautiful woman, but she has like so much depth to her 
as mm-hmm. the entire like movie goes along, where just like that earlier stuff, where you're kind of con- she's kind of confused about where she wants to go with her life, and then the ultimate kind of like worries and the fact that she's able to like be it's it's a very emotionally naked performance. I feel because there's so many times where she's willing to do like very silly sort of like crass stuff, like the the whole sequence where she first uh, meets up with Elvind, um, where like she leaves the party that she's at Axel's. Um, like a little like big party thing, and she's like, you know, I'm just gonna walk into a random party, and she meets this guy, and they have this weird connection immediately, where you can see like the sparks flying, but also just they're able to do like small stuff where they like we don't want to cheat because we both are within relationships with other people, but we're gonna do other weird shit that we think isn't cheating, but it kind of is emotionally cheating, like the thing where they go into the bathroom and just watch each other piss. And weird yeah. stuff like that. It's just like it's funny, and it's very emotionally like na- once again it's very naked. There's like a the total lack of ego in the way the performers kind of act off each other. But she has this real sincerity about her the whole way to where, especially the moments where she's asked by people about like, oh, so what do you want to do with your life? And she's like, um, well, I'm thinking this and this. She's like, yep, lived very very close moments like that, or <laughs> I just don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it captures so well not only that awkwardness of having to be like, oh, there's a couple different things that I'm looking at, but also the look on the other people's faces as they watch you like struggle to describe what you might try and go for. <laughs> yeah, especially like that couple that she meets up with uh, when they have like the little um, like get together in that like weird cabin area where yeah. um they're they're just like looking at her and they have that weird mixture of just like oh, this kid doesn't have it all figured out, and I can sympathize with that, but also, you should probably start figuring that out. I've seen that look on people's faces. Yeah, and it's it's weird, because they don't seem to put that pressure at all on... on uh, what's his name? Uh, Axel's character. Uh, right. Because, um, I, I don't know, it's just weird to see that... I think it's probably because they're his friends and all, but there is a complete lack of holding him responsible for being slightly older and slightly more of the one with power in the relationship than than she has in that moment. Well, yeah, I think a big part of that is obviously also that Axel, like, has these pretensions about him that makes him instantaneously just like, oh, it, he seems like he has stuff figured out, because, like, how many times he'll just, like, babble about, like, you know... Uh, <laughs> like Freud and other bullshit <laughs> yeah. talking to people, which I think they do a great job of like detailing how like that can be annoying, especially for uh, the Julie character. Uh, but at the same time, why other people are just like, Oh, I guess we don't have anything to worry about. He's, he's, he's a successful comic artist. Uh, they're making a movie about his Bobcat character, which I love all that <laughs> yeah. recurring side thread. Like he's a guy who does like underground comics and his character Bobcat is like this, like sort of Fritz the cat. So like raunchy ladies, man, and he talks, but just like, oh, they sent me the mock of the poster. It doesn't look anything like what I want. Look, they removed his anus. The anus that I always drew as a trademark. That represents him as a, a an enemy of the bourgeoisie and bullshit like that. <laughs> like, he has this air about him that makes him like, oh, he's this guy who has it all figured out. But, like, he's not that different from her, which is, like, I think a key part of, like, what makes the relationship like, why they have chemistry, but at the same time, why it could never work out totally for the two of them. Because even yeah. though he has pretensions about, like, oh, I'm older than you, we're at different points in our lives. At the same time, he's, like, not that far off from her, like, on a maturity level, really, like, at all. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but yeah, I mean, there's there's so many great sequences in this movie. Like, what would you say is your favorite sort of like moment of this movie? Like, really like works for you? Like maybe of the chapters or like any scenes that really spotlight out to you? There's there's a few moments that really work. I, a few of the visuals I'm I'm a big fan of, like especially when she's walking home from. Uh, uh, Axel's publishing party to the other party. There's a lot of just really beautiful shots in there. But um, for for me, like the scene that sticks with me is the the scene. Are we in spoiler territory? Yeah, I guess we should see it. Just everybody see this movie. Okay. It's great. Go see it. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's great. Um, uh, feel good movie. Um when he has the prostate cancer and they meet up and they get to talk and it's, it's very clear that like, it's not going to go well. He's looking like, you know, just awful. And the way he's talking and he's like, it's, it's just a very emotional scene that, that hits really hard on that feeling of, at some point, it's gonna be anyone, you know. Yeah, like he, the whole speech that he gives when like they're outside hanging out at the picnic table. Yeah, he just talks about like I used to. I grew up in a world without like digital media and cell phones and computers, really. And I remember just going to stores and like you know getting records and buying movies. And now all I have is like useless knowledge of things no one cares about. And I'm sitting here looking at over at like my Blu-ray collection. I'm like, uh. Uh, yeah. yeah, glad I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that that shit like really cuts to the core, dude. Like that, yeah. or even just the fact that during that he doesn't look like that different than when she last saw him. Like he looks like a bit skinnier or whatnot. And then later on, they have their actual like last encounter together. And he's yeah. like, com- like hairless, and he's just like barely able to function. And especially that bit that's like so heart wrenching when they're in the car, and he talks about just like, I don't want to live on through my art. I don't want to live on through memories of other people. I want to live on with you in my flat. That's how I want to live. Just like it's, it's really fucking real shit. Yeah. And I think it does a great job of like introducing those elements. While at the same time, what I like is the fact that this whole movie. Never feels like it goes too far down into, like, upsetting, depressing angle with it. I think it just kind of feels like it's this very natural sort of look. It's just like, look, some people leave your life, and it's horrible, and it's awful. And then some people aren't right for you in your life. And, like, they're right for you at certain times, but then it kind of, like, transitions out of that. Like, I think it does a great job of, like, making that feel not necessarily just like this is a incredibly depressing movie as much as just like those moments happen alongside really fun sweet intimate moments like the one i talked about at the like when she goes to that party or even sort of the big um thing that they sold the movie on was the sequence that happens where she wakes up after she'd had this encounter with the guy and he comes by the bookstore where she works and then uh, she wakes up to have breakfast with um the axel character and then she flips on a light switch and all of a sudden everything freezes around her and she instantly realizes, like, I have to go to him. And she, like, walks all the way through Oslo and meets up with him at his coffee shop where he works. And it's just this, like, beautiful, sweet moment that, like, a lot of other sort of, like, uh, rom-com kind of movies have done this kind of thing before. But this feels at the very most like just that actual feeling of sort of, like, time literally stopping. And then you just immediately go toward a person. I think it's a beautiful visual way of representing that. Yeah. 
for sure. It's it's that was before I went with the sick dying thing. That was the other like mental image I had that really shot out to me. It's like her just walking through the streets and like passing. I think it's like a moped or a motorcycle, and then turning around and she. It's just this excited, lively feeling, and you really. I, I I would have let that sequence go on forever. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and it's it's like I said, I think like it manages to balance out a lot of that those kind of like beautiful moments in with like the really harsh, upsetting moments. Even like just certain story elements like the bit where they take magic mushrooms, which <laughs> is like a sequence that has like a lot of humor to it, but then as like the actual um, sort of like the bad trip elements come into it and she like sees her body turns like an old person and then she sees like her past lovers are like in this dark version of the room she's in and so then she takes her like menstrual blood and puts it on her face and shit like that. Like there's, that I think is a great example of how the movie mixes like a lot of these uncomfortable feelings you might have about like getting older and getting like past the point where you're like a, you know a young adult into just an adult and then at the same time just have like the fun weird bizarre elements that kind of like make these characters you know very nuanced yeah yeah absolutely i uh, the the mushroom scene specifically i there's a great moment where uh she she says something to what's his name again um elvind Elvin, I thank you. Avind? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She she says something along the lines of like how much she needs him or something like that. And he just kind of like blows her off and like walks away. And it's this like it, in the midst of this kind of weird, trippy, whimsical, horrible kind of moment, uh, there's just this like real life level to it that's so sad and lonely. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a real testament to how Trier kind of like conceived the story like I have a quote here from him about um, making the film where he said uh, for a long time I've wanted to make a movie about love one that goes uh, a bit deeper than the normal on screen love stories where everything is so simple the stories are clear cut the feelings are so admirably ambiguous a film that will look seriously at the difficulties of meeting someone when you're struggling to figure out your own life and how irresolute and uncertain even the most rational and otherwise self-confident people can be uh, when they fall in love, and how complicated it is even for the romantics when they actually get what they want and have been dreaming about. And I think that's a, a great way of, like, I think that beautifully does sum it up, where just this whole movie is about kind of that feeling where it's like, you know, I'm in love with somebody, I don't have my life figured out, but I have this figured out. I know yeah. I love this person, and then that's all that really means to me in the world. And then when that relationship starts to crumble, and you maybe still haven't figured out stuff about yourself, and then it's just like, oh, what do I have? necessarily like that whole bit where he finds like the old story that she wrote and he is talking about like yeah i've, I've read it it's great and she's like why are you digging through my trash it's not good it's bad like i've also had that element too where it's just like yeah if someone reads like old writing of mine i'm just like no it's dumb what the fuck are you doing get that out of here like you don't want to be reminded of shit like that it's like from a past where you didn't really want to go down that path necessarily i think it does a great job of like introducing elements like that just really showing off it's just like uh, look, uh, just because you have, like, found somebody 
and you're like intimate with them doesn't mean that that relationship's going to keep working out or more importantly that your whole life is going to keep working out just because this one problem's resolved in your life and it's also interesting given just the fact that even uh Rainsiv was like initially like she was an actress she is in the oslo movie that you were referring to and apparently she was thinking about quitting acting around this time and she had fallen in love with like basically doing woodwork so she was gonna pull like a reverse harrison ford i guess <laughs> where she went from acting to carpentry um but uh just the fact that she was able to like sort of get this at the specific time and like pull this out like i hope i see more from like her and trier and everybody honestly involved with this movie like it's such phenomenal like filmmaking like i do want to see these other movies that he's done it just yeah. once again i need some space <laughs> from worst <Yeah>. person <laughs> before yeah. i can feel that no i get that especially if you go into uh oslo that that one's that there's no happy <laughs> it's just sad <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I'm curious, how do you think this works, especially with sort of, there, there's two love stories here where the couples do not end up together um, yeah. with uh, the Julie character. Um, how do you think those, like the sort of the degradation, I guess, of those relationships, do you think they feel natural? I, yeah, yeah. I think that the the Ivan relationship does kind of go a little quicker than, than I would have expected. Uh, I kind of would have thought there'd be a, a more drastic deterioration there, but again, it also it also makes sense. Uh, but as far as the the one with Axel, that that one I think is handled perfectly. Yeah, I mean, especially like the sequence where after like this big sequence we talked about, where everything is like standing still for her, the whole sequence that follows that, where she just admits like Axel, I'm not in love with you anymore. I think this is like we're two different points in our lives and this can't work out like the gradual sort of like stages of grief for the relationship that happened there where he's just like oh you're gonna regret this and then he like starts crying and they have sex and then it's like no he's <laughs> she officially leaves and all that i think that's all like a, a great way of handling just that like kind of doubt and worry you have after like something dissolves like that and uh, at the same time, like the fact that they still have a bit of, uh, you know, that they rekindle under the most tragic of circumstances, I think just also speaks to the fact that, like, they probably still wouldn't have been, like, a great couple necessarily. Like, Axel had his own bullshit he was dealing with, especially, we haven't mentioned this, but the whole chapter that's just about, like, his interview on the radio program talking about <laughs> the bobcat character like promoting the movie that's coming out and just this woman being you know talking about like the his early work being offensive and him just talking about like oh well uh, you know if i did a cartoon about this radio interview and i uh did a cartoon version of myself calling you a whore like it would be a commentary on frail masculinity <laughs> just like uh, man, why are you telling on yourself like so badly <laughs> My dude can't stop. <laughs> Especially shout, I love the woman who plays like the sort of intermediary between like the woman asking the questions and Axel who's just like, this has gone way off the rails and we should probably wrap this up followed by him saying like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> <laughs> Me after a couple pints. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. But yeah, just he's dealing with like obviously all this other shit like he can't get over himself and then noticeably once something serious comes into his life that like he can't control it becomes like all that stuff completely melts away and so much more about just like oh man yeah uh i'm facing like the end and this is upsetting 
and did I waste my life necessarily? And then even her contrast talking, just like, but you know, I mean, your your art makes you, you know, sort of immortal. I wish I had had that and stuff like that. I, I love their their back and forth, particularly in like the moments like that, or later on when she uh, talks to him about just like is the first one to confess that she's pregnant too. Yeah. And he just talks like that that bit where she even says like, could you just tell me the thing that you told me before about I would have been a good mom? It's like it's devastating. It's so soul crushing. Yeah, you and you just—it's it, all in his eyes, man. Like the, you just see him, and it's so sad because you know, like, he just—he wanted that life. Like whether he was proud enough to admit it or not, like he actually just wanted, like he said, just to live in his flat with her. And even that, like, he also sees at the same time, just like, I shouldn't have, like, tried to pressure her into that. Because yeah. this just happened naturally with, like, this yeah. other person she's with. Because he keeps saying, like, earlier on when they were in the relationship, just like, I don't know, what do what you have to do before you, like, have kids? Like, people usually have kids before they even figure out anything about their lives, and they just keep going with it. Why don't you want to do that? And it's like, I just want to, like, do more stuff. Okay, what? Like, that kind of shit where it's just like, dude, <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe you just want to have a kid and you can just shut the fuck up for, like, a <laughs> second about it. <laughs> Yeah. But he has to keep. But he has to still be controlling to some degree. And then in that moment we're talking about, it feels like he's definitely flashing. Like, if I had just like chilled the fuck out, maybe I wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had he just like eased off her case just slightly. There's there's no doubt in my mind they would have had a child in their own time. Whenever things just were supposed to happen, and he would have gotten like everything he wanted except for the prostate cancer, but that probably still would have happened. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That's probably coming, but everything else that he wanted <laughs> actually would have made everything worse. Cause you would have had a kid on the way. So actually you turned out great. Yeah. This, this is a good timeline. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but then yeah, just also the ending of this movie. I think it's beautiful where you have like the, you know, she tells Alvin about like this and about being pregnant and they think like, maybe this will work. Maybe we can do something with this. Maybe we could be parents. Maybe I don't know. And then she has the miscarriage and they cut to like uh, about a year or so later. And she's um, on a shoot uh, for like, there's a film shoot going on. She's taking like set photos and she just sees him outside with the main actress who he was like, she was trying to help out during the actual uh, shooting and it turns out she's with Avid now, and they have a kid. And the fact that she doesn't have, like, a huge, like, cry about it, it's just like this, oh, well, I guess it was his time for him to do that, but it's not my time. And then she just goes home, starts putting the photos together, and in the end. I mean, that's, like, a beautiful ending about just this this whole movie is so much about, like we mentioned, kind of, like, the weird foibles you go down with in, like, a particular period of your life. And then just realizing, like, you're not going to have, like, a massive sense of ennui, necessarily. Uh, but at the same time, you have, like, a different perspective. Everything kind of shifts. And there's just kind of that acknowledgement of, like, oh, I guess things are a bit different. But just got to keep soldiering on. I, I love that ending. I love that it, it, there's not a hint of, of bitterness to it. It's, it's just she's good with it. She doesn't you know seem angry she doesn't seem sad she's just happy she's doing her thing right that just yeah. uh you know everybody has a different path in life yeah and all that but it doesn't feel you know kind of like 
the way we're describing this, it could sound like it's a lame ending for a movie, necessarily. It's just like, well, life goes on, uh, and credits, uh, necessarily. But the way it's really beautifully handled, we can't emphasize enough how, like, us two schmoes talking about this, like, beautiful movie. It doesn't, like, really do the movie justice, necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's only so much that, like... Like, we can relate to the, like, you know, time passing us, you know, by thing, but, like... It's the, we can't relate to like what it's like to be a lady or or anything or a Julie specifically. But are you saying that two white dudes on the internet don't know everything about different perspectives? Dude, it's a wild that, idea. I can't believe it. that's insane to me. That, but all those people on Reddit I talk to seem to know everything about all sorts of people who they aren't. They reference the Matrix. I mean, good point. You know, yeah, the the pills and whatnot. Yeah. When you uh, when you mentioned that like it sounds like a boring ending or whatever, I just thought like, what do they want? Like at the end credits, like Julie will return in Kang Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Worst person in the world too, even worse. <laughs> I also even I love the fact that like with the title. Like, when I had heard about this movie initially, I just heard, like, the title of the worst person in the world. is like, oh, is it going to be actually about, like, an awful, like, anti-hero protagonist? Is it going to be, like, Walter White? <laughs> but as, like, a 30-year-old woman in Oslo or whatever? And it's like, no, it just, it's just that, it's that feeling that, like, you, like, what I interpret at least the title to be is basically just, like, that feeling you have about yourself as you're going along with your life. And you feel like, oh, I'm such a piece of shit. <laughs> like, those feelings you have of, like self-reflection where you're worried about like oh am i like actually in a good station in my life am i doing enough am i like really able to like keep going with my life and whatnot like she, you see so many much of that throughout the movie like i love um the 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 one scene where like you mentioned it where she has like her 30th birthday and she's blowing out the candles and then she thinks back to all the different like her grandmother and her great grandmother like what they were doing at 30 even going yeah. all the way back just like she didn't even turn 30 life expectancy was 35 at that time <laughs> and so like that it gives you like that, that kind of perspective that you kind of like loom out for especially when you like have a big transitional phase in your life where you're just like oh am i doing what everyone should be that kind of goal posting you put yourself at and the maturity that she ends up having by the end of the movie is just like i don't need to have that necessarily in my life i don't need to do that like the progression that she has is small things like her not like uh giving her very distant dad any kind of attention like, I love that element, which is, like, it's a subtle arc that, like, initially she tries to get him to go to his, her party, and he's like, no, my back and whatnot, but you see later on when she visits him, that, like, he has basically a whole different family that he has way more attention toward than her, and she just kind of realizes, like, you know, if you're not going to, like, be there for me, that's fine, I'm not going to be there for you either. I'm not going yeah. like, to pretend about this necessarily. And, like, the emotional maturity that's there means just, like, look, you're not going to have, like... Not all of her problems are resolved by the end of this movie, but you can see like the small goalpost kind of uh, things that she's had, that she's had up to this time, and so it's just like yeah, we'll see, you know, where it goes. Like you've had some development, but it's not like a massive character arc change where I suddenly realize the true meaning of family or whatever <laughs> that like a lot of these kind of movies fucking try and have like the more Hollywood version of it. It's just like it's you know some gradual change, but not necessarily a mass amount of stuff because she's still got a whole life to live after that yeah well ryan uh are there any <laughs> final thoughts you have about the worst person in the world uh i don't know I, I pretty much i think we've got it out for me like i think it's great i think it's one of the few movies of its type to actually not only 
work in the in the context of what we're talking about with doomed romances but also i think it really does capture an element of growing up that doesn't get conveyed on film nearly enough or nearly as well as it is here um and yeah i would i would really i need to see the first part of the oslo trilogy but uh i would highly recommend people check out that the the second one yeah i mean i'm completely second all that and just would say yeah when this i remember i watched this as part of like sort of oscar catch-up um from around the time because this was like nominated as i mentioned for like the screenplay international film awards and um I would still say this is probably my favorite of any of the movies that were nominated in any of like the major categories from last year. I genuinely think like this is a movie that I think can appeal to somebody who's like in that position, especially like I was when I first saw this, um, and still maybe kind of am a year later. You know, maybe a bit. I yeah. don't know. Um, but <laughs> but um, the but that like have that kind of you know feeling like it's oh it hits very close to home there. But even if you're older, it's not. And you watch this, and it's not. It's not just going to be a thing of like oh and. Like, it's me looking back nostalgically. It's like, no, it deals with other shit that's just, like, more toward, like, end-of-life shit. Like, I think that's that's what works about this movie. It's like, it has something for anybody at any sort of, like, point in their life, necessarily, to either kind of, like, relate to or find, you know, some kind of, like, tether to. But at the same time, be just a genuinely entertaining, interesting movie about, like, love and loss and all these other things. Uh, it's just, it's an incredible movie. Definitely, if you have not seen it, seek it out. But uh, now it's time for our weekly segment, The Double Redo. So the double redo is a segment that we do every week uh, in which we, uh, you know, in relation to uh, the topic, we bring up a good and a bad feature. Uh, you know, one to recommend to everybody out there, and one to steer you clear of related to, in this case, doomed romances. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and start uh, with my uh, double redo choices here. Uh, my good choice is a film uh, from way back in 1964. It's a French musical um, called Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, which basically tells the story of two people who fall in love. Uh, there's uh, Genevieve, played by Catherine Deneuve, and Guy, played by uh, Nino Castelluvo, um, and they're a couple who uh, initially um, meet each other, and uh, because of this, uh, they get the umbrellas, the titular umbrellas, are from the boutique shop um, that the uh, young girl works at with her mom, and um, she ends up, you know, meeting this guy who's, like, sort of a factory worker, and they have a interesting, like, romance that eventually evolves into spoilers, given the topic is doomed romances. Uh, they don't end up together by the end of it. Um, I think it's such a beautiful movie that is, like, it's a musical very much in the sense of, like, it's almost opera, because it's, like, consistent, sort of, like, everyone's singing. There's no, like, pause, necessarily, in the songs, really. There's very few pauses, if anything, but it's such a, like, it's a gorgeous-looking movie. Um, it's from Jacques Demi, is the director-writer, and I think, like, the way that uh, the colors pop beautifully, the performances are so phenomenal, Deneuve is, like, amazing in this movie. I just like depicting what we're what we've been talking about, which is like that whole feeling of like, oh, you initially fall in love, and then you kind of like have the point where like you live with this person for a while, and then realizing it doesn't work out by the end of it, and it's done like so artfully and beautifully, and the music uh, from Michelle Legrand um, is so good. And I, weirdly, the connection I had with this was um, the first time I heard any music from this movie was in Futurama. There's the episode uh, Jurassic Bark, which involves Fry uh, finding his 
dog preserved in amber um, and then trying to like revive him basically. And then the ending scene that everyone like cries over with that fucking episode of seeing the dog waiting for Fry um, is scored to an English version of one of the songs in this movie. <laughs> and um, it's like devastating in that particular context. It's even more devastating in context of the movie as well. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful little movie. Umbrellas of Sherberg, tremendous stuff. Um, and then the bad one is one I'd seen in high school and loved so much and I'd been dreading revisiting. Um, it's called 500 Days of Summer. Uh, this was obviously the movie that came out in 2009, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. Um, and it's basically about like the sort of um, untraditional structure in which you see sort of different snippets of different days from the relationship between uh, Tom, who is the uh, Gordon-Levitt character, and Summer, who's the Zoe Deschanel character, and their relationship, and how they initially like meet each other, and then how it disintegrates, and eventually they don't end up together by the end of the movie. And um, with uh, 500 Days of Summer, it was, like I said, a movie that when I saw it, in high school, I thought, like, oh, this is great. This is, like, so unlike traditional rom-coms. It's so subversive. It's so good. And then in the aftermath of that, um, I remember hearing a lot of people saying, like, sort of the backlash, like, oh, that movie does not hold up very well. It's not very good. And I was worried, like, if I ever revisit this, is it going to be, like, a fucking dumpster fire of a bad movie? And then revisiting it, um, I don't necessarily think it's that. I don't think it's the great five out of five masterpiece I thought it was when I was like 17 or whatever um it's instead just like this movie that has like a lot of very twee elements to it it's very much like 2009 in that particular way that it feels like oh this is like a soundtrack that would be at a Starbucks CD rack back when they had those and shit like that um and there's like some cute elements still like I think Gordon Levitt and Deschanel are like charming actors enough to where, like, they get a bit of, like, you know, a laugh or something charming here. And it's directed by Mark Webb, who would go on to make the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Um, mainly, I assume, because of his surname. Because there's no other reason why you would go from <laughs> that fucking movie to Spider-Man, necessarily. Um, but, like, it's, it's definitely a movie where, like, I think some elements are interesting. Like, there's a whole sequence where you have, like, split-screen of expectations versus reality play out that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and there's some fun people in the cast, like Chloe Moretz is uh, very young here in this one. Um, yeah, Clark Gregg shows up as, like, his boss. Uh, there's a few other things. I think there's some interesting elements to it, but it definitely feels like a movie of 2009 that a teenager would think is, like, oh, this is cool and subversive. And it just, you know, some stuff doesn't hold up about it anymore. And it's kind of like, oh, it's not nearly as, I think, interesting or deep as it's talking about. Like, literally that whole thing I talked about, it's like, oh, yeah, this is what rom-coms should be. This isn't what, like, all the greeting cards are selling us and all this other bullshit that you think is, like, a f like a subversive idea at 17 and then you get older just like shut up <laughs> dude <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about like the, that literally happens with, like the big speech that gets Gordon Levitt to like quit his job at the greeting card thing is just that fucking bullshit a <laughs> hundred times over and I like I said I don't think it's like as egregiously terrible as maybe some people have said it is but also I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as like a good movie anymore necessarily it feels very much of its time uh, yeah, no, I, I, both those choices are really solid. I, I like, um, umbrellas a lot, actually. I, I picked up the Criterion once and I, I loved it. I have the album on vinyl. Like, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful, really sad mu musical. And, um, yeah, I love that movie. Uh, 500 Days of Summer. I'm in the same boat as you as I've been kind of, dreading going back to it and i i still haven't because it was one that meant so much to me growing up and i would really 
like hate to see it become very twee and kind of cringy and i'm sure it it will and i'm sure it always has been but it's it's something that i i i know eventually i'm gonna come back to and i i feel like i'm gonna be a little bit kind of disappointed that it doesn't hold up but i mean that's all part of growing up ryan you know just going back to these things that we loved and put on a pedestal as kids and then realize isn't nearly as like interesting or clever as we thought it was before it's all part of progressing and moving forward like look on the show adam had to revisit boondock saints oh that no that poor loves. man <laughs> that poor gen xer <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, he. But at the very least, I'll say this isn't like a. I was dreading it being a boondock scenario where, like, I was gonna watch. It's like, oh, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. She's like, no, it's just kind of like whatever. Okay. At this point, <laughs> it's just kind of a, a thing that's there, <laughs> necessarily. Cool. But uh, Ryan, you have some choices of your own for the double redo. I do. Uh, so my first one, I'm really excited. I get to talk about because no one's talked about it on the podcast before. Is Lars von Trier's Antichrist? <laughs> it's just really cool and really sad and really funny. And Willem Dafoe had to get a replacement to like he couldn't be nude on set because apparently his dick was so big that they needed someone else to come in. <laughs> um. All right, but it's time to be serious. Antichrist is a movie that I originally discovered by just pure happenstance. It sounded more subversive than I'd ever like dealt with or seen or anything like that. It sounded like it was probably more than I could even handle and it sounded challenging and I was really excited about that opportunity. So it took me a while, but I eventually sought it out and I watched Antichrist and it was just bleak and beautiful and shot so well and it's you know you have that typical air of Lars von Trier edgelord shit but it's all in all just really good and Charlotte Gainsborough is incredible in this film like it's it is well worth picking up on the Criterion uh blu-ray because it's it's so well done uh, as for the bad, uh, I had to go back uh, on on something that I said in a previous episode that I, I did here uh, when I was on the Marvel episode. I, I, I supported uh, Taika Waititi and Thor being paired together, but my bad choice today is uh, Thor Love and Thunder because it's an egregious disgusting blasphemous creation it, it doesn't even seem to exist for marvel which is weird it seems just to exist for taika which in some ways i should respect but i would respect it for more if it had its own sense of fun to it everything feels so forced everything feels try hard about it there's nothing about it that I find particularly charming, which is insane given the fact that, like, with Chris Hemsworth, he's good at selling comedy. All the people seemed like they would be more suited to, to, you know, being good support to that and letting Chris just do his thing. But 
forcing Natalie Portman to be funny when she might just not be very funny with that material, it it doesn't work. And Taika Waititi inserting himself into every fucking moment of that film also doesn't work. The Guardians are wasted. Yeah, top to bottom, just it's the shittiest Marvel movie there is. Well, I have seen both of yours. Um, I haven't seen Antichrist since, I guess, around the time I watched 500 Days of Summer, because uh, it was just, like, a movie I didn't enjoy and thought was so, like, devastatingly upsetting. But I was just like, I don't know if I ha- got much out of that, necessarily. Um, I may want to revisit that in the future. Uh, maybe just, in general, I want to get more into Von Trier, because uh, I've just kind of avoided that, just because, like, I don't want to feel bad kind of element of it, <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I really liked uh, Melancholia. That's the other one I've seen. I think okay. that's a tremendous movie. I think that's one at least has a bit more, like, fascinating, like, character depth to it than necessarily Antichrist, which has just felt like a slog of misery when I first watched it. But I'd like to revisit it at some point, maybe with a bit more of a mature mindset. Um, and then Thor, Love, and Thunder, yeah. When this podcast started, I was still very much in the, like, sort of pro-Marvel camp. And I was just like, oh, I, I still like these movies. Some are better than others, but I still enjoy these a lot. And I'm sorry to any MCU fans who are regular listeners because i've become a lot more like critical and degradating of the marvel machine i guess i think especially it was after um you and i the last time we did any kind of podcasting thing ryan was on the patreon we yeah. did a thing about spider-man no way home uh which kind of like gave me an existential dread <laughs> sludge basically it was just like oh god i don't know and in the wake of that movie the phase four offerings i think have been very uneven um and n- none of them have been like excellent to me i think i liked you know multiverse of madness fine i liked wakanda forever despite like what it was you know all the hamperings yeah. that it had necessarily going into it uh, but yeah love and thunder there's that whole phrase about like oh you know the getting giving somebody like a blank check to do whatever they want and it feels like you know a, a lot of these marvel directors don't get that chance but, like, Taika somehow got that with Thor Ragnarok, which I still think is a fun movie. Yeah. And I liked, generally, most of his, like, output prior to that. So I was like, okay, I'm very curious to see him getting another chance at this. Like, what? how different is it going to be? And it feels like somebody got, like, carte blanche to do whatever they wanted, but he also didn't want to do it. <laughs> like, it feels like he's, like, the moment he got, like, the key to do it, he's like, oh, I've lost interest, but contractually I have to do this, I guess, so I'll fart something out it feels like a movie done out of apathy which is yeah. so weird given like the nature of the stories that's supposed to be like very tinged on like oh sort of like a love loss like especially with like the natalie portman and chris hemsworth characters like going from their earlier relationship which wasn't the best relationship necessarily <laughs> in marvel but like having like them sort of like reunite with each other maybe fall in love again but then by the end of it spoilers um she's uh not going to be around to do that necessarily you would figure, like, there would be some kind of, like, interesting introspection and tragedy that's inherent to that story, and the problem is that, like, because of who Taika Waititi is, like, he can't help but make, like, jokes the entire time, which I think can be fine in the right hands, it's just, like, in these hands, um, the jokes are, like, mostly not fucking funny at all. It is, like, a dead zone of comedy, aside from, like, probably the hammer f- joke, where, like, Thor has, like, the issue with, like, Stormbreaker and, like, his regular hammer, and they're, like, sentient, and he's just like, oh, baby, no, don't don't worry, don't leave, don't leave me. Like, that, I think, is, like, the one consistently funny running joke, but there's so much other stuff that feels apathetic and passive, and just doesn't feel like there's any real love in this, and that's why I would definitely say, like, most of the other, like, 
bad quote-unquote Marvel movies, I just think are, like, completely forgettable, like, two and a half out of five star kind of affairs. They're just like, eh, whatever. Like, I don't have much feelings either way toward them. This is one of the few I would say is actively terrible and bad. And, um, I don't know, yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily excited. We're recording this on the, uh, right before Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania comes out. And uh, that doesn't look that interesting to me, necessarily. It feels even more like, oh, just gray sludge. Yeah. Kind of floating around, necessarily. Um, also, it looks so bad. Like, this is, I think, he's, like, the worst looking of any of the Marvel movies. To the degree that, like, there's the point where it goes black and white at a certain point, And it's like, oh, wow, the color grading is down, like, two notches. From, like, when it's bright and colorful, quote-unquote. Which we even talked about. The Thor Ragnarok is much more colorful and bright-looking. Yeah. In a really interesting way, as opposed to this one. Um, only other thing I'll just shout out, I think Christian Bale was fun in that movie. He doesn't yeah, have a lot to do. He's doing the best he can. Yeah. I think particularly the bit with um, him talking to the kids where they're just like, oh, no, Thor's going to save us. Just like, oh, you think Thor's going to save you? And he's going like <laughs> fucking Skeletor in yeah. the, rest of the universe movie. Just like really silly, campy fun. Like, I like elements like that, but uh, few and far between. Yeah. In that movie. For sure. Uh, but let's repeat our titles for everybody out there for this Devil Redo. Uh, my good choice was Umbrellas of Sherberg, and my bad choice was 500 Days of Summer. And my good choice was Lars von Trier's Antichrist, and my bad choice was Thor Love and Thunder. Antichrist, a beautiful movie for Valentine's Day. Go ahead and watch it after, <laughs> after you listen to this episode. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, but... Um, we're going to start wrapping up the show, though. Stay tuned to the very ending. We'll be doing our picks for next week. But first, we want to thank some people uh, like, of course, uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, find him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. For uh, more of his great stuff on various different social platforms. And thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to uh, vote in polls for individual episodes or movies. Uh, like, for example, you all picked Worst Person in the World for us to cover, so thank you so much out there, patrons. And of course, in reference to the voting, uh, we should mention this week, this episode's coming out, you will be able to vote uh, for next month. Uh, we like doing sort of like revisits of a certain year in film, uh, and we've done, you know, like the 70s and 80s and stuff like that, but we haven't done sort of the one of the more recent decades here with the 2010s. So we're asking you all to vote for which, between which two years we devote a whole episode to, between 2012 and in 2015 lots of interesting good and bad choices in either of those years so it's all up to you guys out there on the wednesday after this comes out that poll will be put up so you all can vote for uh, which one of those we devote an episode to come next month and uh, also you get bonus podcasts to your patreon uh if you're an edgelord patron as we like to call you out there the edgelords our little nickname for you and uh, you get to listen to the bonus podcasts that uh, we put up there once a month like um some point before the end of february Adam and I are putting up The Dubs, uh, which will be our award show to the movies of 2022, um, a name that we decided to come up with because we wanted it to be like if any celebrity heard they got an award called The Dubs, they would immediately want to throw it out because it sounds like such a dumb garbage name <laughs> for an award show. And, you know, I'll just say this much. Um, worst person in the world might get a couple um, nominations, maybe wins. Who knows? Uh, at The Dubs from somebody. On that panel, uh, stay tuned for that. Become a patron and find out about it uh, by the end of the month. And uh, like I said, patreon.com slash dedbpod and just $1 a month to get all that bonus stuff. And of course, uh, I want to thank, last but not least at all, Ryan 
for coming <laughs> on the show. Ryan, thank you so much for coming in a pinch and helping me out with this episode. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Where can people find you on the internet, Ryan? Uh, letterboxd.com, uh, and you can just find me by searching my name, Ryan Quarterman. Yes, uh, it's a fun time, Ryan <laughs> Litterbox. It flops between genuine, like, insightful criticism and dumb jokes. Sometimes both at the same time. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Very rarely. I'm, I'm being very generous <laughs> with that. But uh, for more of us here at our show, uh, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And also you can uh, submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And for more of me, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at um, both my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, and at Film-Cred.com. And uh, for more of the show, please follow us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for like over 200 episodes before we joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, uh, you know, support us on the Patreon. Money can be tight. We totally get it. But the free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around that gets us more visibility out there. Well, now we've come to the picking, which we do at the end of every single episode, where uh, each week, Adam and I, uh, one of us has two good picks, one of us has two bad picks. We switch up on the quality for that. And uh, we assign those each in numbers between 1 and 10. And in the case where Adam's on his sabbatical, I have his good picks for next episode, as well as my bad picks. I've assigned each of them numbers between 1 and 10. So Ryan, as uh, the guest, will pick a number between 1 and 10 and be like, oh, I'm going to pick number 7. So I'll say, okay, that's close to number 6, which is this particular uh, option. And uh, this will be for our next episode, which we mentioned Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania is coming out, uh, but we're not doing an MCU episode because we don't want to just completely shit on whatever <laughs> like topic necessarily at this point. We want to be like bitter, angry, like, oh, film isn't what it used to be types. Uh, so we're going to devote an episode to one of the actors featured in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Uh, we're going to talk about Michelle Pfeiffer, is our topic for next week. A great actress who I've been wanting to devote an episode to, and you know what? This seemed as good a time as any because she's getting that bag for going around on green screen and flying on, like, fake things and shit. Good for her, you know? Get her bag. She deserves it. <laughs> but, Ryan, for Adam's two good picks first, please pick a number between one and ten. Seven. Okay. At number nine... Adam has a movie I haven't seen before, but I'm very curious because it has not just Pfeiffer, but also a massive cast. Glenn Close, John Malkovich, I believe this is an early Keanu Reeves as well, uh, from back in the early 90s. I have, uh, well, Adam has Dangerous Liaisons, hmm. one I have not seen. I'm very curious to see. Uh, but on the other side of things, over at number two, he had a movie I have seen that I think is a lot of fun. Uh, it also has a great cast with Pfeiffer... Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Jack Nicholson as Satan himself in The Witches of Eastwick. A very fun movie. Nice. But now, for my two bad ones, Ryan. Okay. Number between one and ten. Four. Okay. At number two, um, I have a movie that is also a number two in its own right, because it is a sequel. Um, I believe it's Michelle Pfeiffer's debut, if not like one of her very early films in the early 80s. It is the sequel to the very popular musical Grease... Grease 2, <laughs> which I'm very excited <laughs> to talk in depth about Grease 2. But on the other side of things, um, over at number 10, 
I had a movie that I think has gotten some like retroactive acclaim or was very popular at the time, but I don't think holds up nearly as well. I have the supernatural thriller with her and Harrison Ford, What Lies Beneath. I think I think I made the better episode. <laughs> yeah, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> with Dangerous Liaisons and Grease 2. We'll have a lot of fun next one. That's the kind of double features we get sometimes, man. That's how it works out. But on that note, everybody, uh, it's time for everything to stop and for Ryan and I to walk forward through the incredibly, like, time-stopped cityscape. Uh, mainly so we can beat the traffic. Yeah. Too much traffic. <laughs>